so I did not know this was going to be recorded, so this can be a lot shorter than uh, <laughs> I was planning. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, thank you all for the opportunity to be here today. Um, when I was asked to share my story, um, I thought about it for a little while and thought, you know, my story, can you all hear me okay? I'm sort of soft-spoken. Um, it's not all that interesting, at least to me. And so then I, then I start kind of outlining, and I think, you know, it's, it's tough to condense your life into 40 or 45 minutes. I mean, I mean, you can either, like, do your elevator speech of five minutes of, you know, da-da-da, or you start kind of outlining these big events, and it could get, get really long. So I'm trying to err on the side of, of being uh, more um, concise. I would, I would describe my personality and my identity um, with several, kind of, this is going to sound cynical, but it's kind of served me well. I'm a world-class warrior. I am world-class. And so uh, I'm a six on the Enneagram, those of y'all that are into the Enneagram. And I have a, I'm an accountant by training, and I have sort of a trite saying that I used to say to our boards and things, say, not only, Barry is, y'all know Barry, her glass is not only full, it's overflowing, right? My glass is half empty, and it's got a slow leak in it. <laughs> so I, I've been blessed with a, with a very good life uh, overall. Uh, I had some events in my kind of late childhood and early adolescence that I'll share with you that has caused me significant anxiety pretty much the rest of, the rest of my life. It still affect me. Um, my career, like most men, I guess, has been a career part, a big part of my story. And I'll share, I'll probably share too many details with you, but again, once I got going, it's kind of hard to, to stop. So I was born in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1959. Uh, as Paulette mentioned, my greatest blessing is being married to Barry for 38 plus years. And that's a huge part of my identity is being Mr. Barry Craig Harwell. Uh, I, oh, you're Barry's husband. Yeah. Um, she, I, you know, uh, in sports vernacular, I way, way, way outkick my coverage, just as many of you us can say. Um, Paulette already mentioned our children and grandchildren, and the only thing I'll add to that is I vowed before the first one was born that I was not going to become that grandfather. I've become that grandfather. Um, so I'm the youngest of three. I have two older sisters. They're five and seven years older than me. And that was like growing up with three mothers. And the, my mom has been gone about 10 years. But um, my sisters, uh, particularly one of them, still tried to mother me. And um, so uh, my middle sister, many of you probably know, Sarah Harwell, um, she is the most well-known of the three of us. She's a very accomplished archivist. She worked at the Disciples of Christ Historical Society for a long time. Um, and she is a rock star in her field. Uh, my dad was an industrial engineer. He spent his whole career at Genesco. We'll come circle back to Genesco in a minute. Um, and my mom was a secretary at a shock absorber plant there in Pulaski, and then later was a secretary at Lipscomb. And that's significant too. Lipscomb, my mom being secretary in the business department. I was looked after in Pulaski by my maternal grandmother. Um, she had 15 grandchildren. And all 15 of us, we've compared notes over the years, we all thought we were her favorite. And I think about 15, 
15, and, and they were spread, I mean, we were in Nashville. I had another couple of cousins that were in Nashville. Everybody else was in Giles County. But even though we didn't see her very often, you know, she would write us notes and stuff. So very, very, very fond memories of her. I don't remember a whole lot about those early years, but I do have a general remembrance of being happy. It was a good time. Um, I have two really distinct early childhood memories. Uh, the first one is JFK's assassination. So I was, I was four and a half years old, and I remember my, my sisters came home from school. The schools were closed. Um, my dad and mother came home from their jobs, and um, the TV was on. I, we, didn't, we watched a lot of TV at night, but not during the day, and the news was on. And uh, I didn't understand what had happened, but I knew something that was a big deal, and it was not a good thing. Um, my second childhood memory is a much, much, much happier one. Um, and so my dad had a Chevrolet, and uh, back then you could go to the dealership and get your car oil changed or whatever, and they would turn it around in a couple of hours. And so we would just kill time wandering around the lot looking at cars. And um, so we walked in one time, and there's a red 63 Corvette split window coupe on the showroom floor, and I'm four and a half years old, and I'm smitten. I'm like, that's the most beautiful car ever. And so um, I fell, in, I literally fell in love with that car. And so over the next couple of months, we made several trips to the dealer every, pretty much every weekend. And because Corvettes evidently didn't sell very quickly in Pulaski, um, <laughs> so uh, that was uh, that was the beginning of my love affair with cars. Um, and the cars were the main common interest that I shared with my father. Uh, I literally learned to read, reading his leftover Motor Trend magazines. And I, I, have a, I have a great memory for numbers, and I'll come back to that in a minute. I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Well, I think about it, I might, but in general, I just, but um, I, I could remember specifications of specific engines that were gen only Chevrolet engines, not Ford or Chrysler, but Chevrolet. Um, and so this car gene evidently skips a generation because neither one of our kids have any interest in cars whatsoever. It's an appliance and, and varies the same way. If it's reliable and get her from point A to point B, she's fine with it. Um, but our grandson, Fielder, who's two and a half, is quite knowledgeable. He can distinguish a Bronco from a Forerunner. He knows my car when I pull up. He knows Barry's. He knows Barry's got a newer car. Um, and he can tell Corvettes from Ferraris, which is really important. Um, so so, uh, so I've, got, I've got a car buddy, you know, uh, a generation once removed. So my dad mentioned Genesco. He was transferred here from Pulaski in 1964. And that had lasting impacts for our family. Some good, some not so good. Um, the move seemed like a good thing for his career. He was promoted. He was over, whereas he was a plant engineer in Pulaski, he was over a bunch of plants in this new job, engineering, not production. So his job was to take a design of a shoe, a, an artist's design of a shoe, and figure out how to make it. And so, and then he would, um, he was a classic i.e. in terms of industrial engineer being very into efficiency and order and all that. But um, the raise that he was given when we moved here was not really sufficient to cover the cost of living in Nashville versus living in Pulaski. And so we became what I would call house poor. 
Um, housing prices were ridiculously low, uh, and my parents did do pretty well whenever they sold a house, but um, they just couldn't afford to live where they chose to live. Let, let me give you some numbers of housing prices from the mid-60s and early 70s. We, we bought a house in Donaldson in 1964 and paid $9,000 for it. What I don't remember is what they got out of the house in Pulaski. I don't, I don't remember that. Uh, in 1971, when we moved across town to Green Hills, sold that same house for 16000 So that's, that's pretty close to doubling your money in a pretty short period of time. The Green Hills house, which is right down the street from Paulette's house, uh, bought it in 1971 for uh, 27000 And my mom sold it in 1991 for 120000 So five times growth in 20 years. Um, and the mark, that real estate market enabled them to refinance pretty often whenever something major came up. And somebody needed a car, medical expenses, the house, HVAC for the house, new roof, whatever. Um, and the sad part of that is my mom owed more on the house in Green Hills when she sold it in 1991 than they had paid for it in 1971. So they didn't like debt, but it was really the only way my dad saw to stay where they live. And so this is this kind of ties into being the warrior and the Enneagram, the six on the Enneagram, all that. I think my dad, though, did intuitively know one thing. He knew that it was better if you were going to stretch yourself and that in the market that we've enjoyed in Middle Tennessee for 50-plus years to overextend on your house rather than move way out and burn up a lot of time and go through cars quickly, spending your time on the road. So in the end, it worked out okay for my mom. Um, and I'll get back to my father in a second because he died at about my age uh, now. But um, she had enough equity in the house in Green Hills. When, when she retired and moved to Bellevue, she had enough equity in the house to pay cash for it. And so that was kind of the happy ending. It's kind of sad that my dad's whole life was financially stressed, but the kind of bet the farm on the house in Green Hills, and it, it worked out. So lasting impacts from that move are several. One, a lot of stress on my parents. Um, and as a young, a young child, I was way too aware of the financial struggles, way too aware. And so I started working, throwing papers when I was 14. And before that, actually, as I'm thinking through this, I actually started selling greeting cards. Remember Cheerful House greeting cards? I did that. And all the, all the moms in the neighborhood would order cards from me. And, I mean, they were... They were expensive, and I don't know what they used them for. But anyway, I've, I've, worked, I've worked my whole life except for two years during business school. And um, I got to the point where my parents would borrow money from me, which my dad had done the same for his parents when, when, before we moved to Nashville. Uh, and so I made an unspoken, and I think it may have been even subconscious, commitment to myself that I was going to be financially responsible and not be dependent upon debt to, to pay for major living expenses. And so, um, and, and that whole experience of, of early childhood anxiety uh, came back later in my career. Uh, another major milestone had, it may have had something to do with the move because my dad got a really bad case of rheumatoid arthritis. And you know now we know it's an autoimmune disorder and stress could have brought that on, we'll never know, but he, he was basically dis he was diagnosed when I was probably eight or nine, so we were still living in Donaldson. He was basically disabled for several years. 
Um, he kept working at Genesco, but that was pretty much all he did. He came home and just collapsed. Uh, my mother and my sisters took care of the yard, the house, uh, pretty much everything else. And for me personally, and I, I didn't really realize this until, until much later, um, he couldn't do the things that most dads do with their sons. I mean, uh, he couldn't play ball with me. He couldn't ride bikes with me. And one of my uncles, his younger brother, uh, never had kids. And whenever he was around, he would always bring his baseball glove. And a baseball glove for me, I never it really dawned on me until you mentioned it yesterday, that he was being, I'm going to tear up, um, intentional about making sure that I got some experiences. And so he, he had a bigger influence than sports on me as well. I'll get back to that in a second. But... So in addition to being house poor, we were very concerned about his ability to work. And so he felt really poorly for about 15 years. Uh, and the pain that he was suffering was, it was evident in pictures from that time. You could just, you just tell. Uh, so I'm sure uh, that we were all anxious, but, you know, in, in classic, um, it was stoic. He just didn't talk about it. Just kind of gutted it out. So... Um, Another lasting impact of that move was uh, I transferred to Lipscomb Elementary in fifth grade. Uh, my mom got a job there uh, as a secretary in the business department, another theme I'll come back to, um, so that my sisters could go to college there. Because uh, she got a job, I think my older sister was probably a junior in high school, and th at that time Lipscomb granted a 75% tuition discount. I, right from the start, there was no vesting in it. I mean, it's like she showed up and got the discount. And so I transferred, mainly so I wouldn't be a latchkey kid where I, in Donaldson. Um, and I'm not sure that any of us would have been able to go to college if they had not made that sacrifice. So some enduring truths about my parents, my family of origin. Um, they made huge sacrifices to educate us and also to have opportunities that they didn't have. Uh, we moved to Green Hills in 1971, uh, mainly to shorten my mom's commute. That was way, way, way before 440 was open. Barley Parkway wasn't open. So Donaldson to Lipscomb was a long, long slog. Um, they modeled what I would call a couple-centered marriage, um, particularly my dad. He worshiped my mom. And um, he loved us, but it was pretty clear that we were, we were second, you know, in the pecking, which was fine. I mean, I think that's the way it should be. Um, so both of them kept going when things got tough. They just kept going. Um, and they had a quiet and um, uns not, we didn't talk about it a lot, but an unspoken faith that, that, you know, everybody was worried about his health and about money, but they still were faithful. And I guess most importantly, they did the best they could. I know that. So 1970 or so, things got a lot better. My dad, he still had rheumatoid arthritis, but he got to where he felt a lot better, and we were not uh, trying to keep him from getting... He, he had a short fuse when he was really sick, just to be candid. So I got settled in at Lipscomb, and I discovered my love for music. And so... Um, I was influenced by my uncle, who was a, 
Um, he was a guitar player and a singer in a country western band in Pulaski, which means playing beer joints all over those three or four counties, which I never got to hear him. I got to hear him at his house, but, you know, my parents, he offered to take me a couple of times. That was not, you know. And I've seen Roadhouse, so I probably know what happened. <laughs> um, but um, he was, I'd always he would play whenever we would be together. And um, he was, and then I had a cousin who actually played in a band with, I remember Bobby Carver. We, Bobby and I figured out that my cousin and Bobby played in a band together. Another band that played the joints in Giles County and the other counties. Um, so I played the trumpet and pep band, and I played guitar and bass in a band called Shaft. And how many of y'all remember Carol Ellis? Do y'all remember Bernie, his son? Bernie was our front man, but an extremely talented pianist and a, just a, you know, 3X personality. And so he, he was our front man. And um, because I think of Dr. Ellis's connections, we got hired to do a lot of Church of Christ Junior Senior Banquets, which were subs for the prom, for the prom, the prom. So we, we played literally all over this. I bet we played in two years, we probably played 30 places. And some of the programs, the people that were there would come up after we were through playing and ask us for our autographs. <laughs> Those are true collector's items now. <laughs> You can find one, hang on to it. Um, and then not participating in music, but just the music that I love, I discovered the Allman Brothers Band, and, and uh, they are still my favorite. I still listen to the, that stuff's 50 years old, and it's still, still the best. Um, and I mentioned my paper out at 14. I uh, did that all through college, um, and the main reason I kept with it was I realized that being a car person, I just saw what the little bit I knew about our financial situation. I knew if I was going to have a car, I was going to be buying the car. So I got that's why I got the paper out. Ended up doing really well with it, and I had a paper out car, which was an old Volkswagen that was indestructible. And then um, and Barry used to deliver papers with me, so. and uh, and then I had a nicer car. So um, anyway, it was it was it, it worked out. Um, and I graduated high school in 77, and I was an average student doing the minimum to get by. And as I thought about this, and really kind of, you know, when, you, when you're asked to kind of look at your life and review, it's kind of, you realize that's pretty disrespectful because my parents had made great sacrifices, and I, I was just doing, doing the, the, the bare minimum to get by. I was very self-absorbed, and... Um, a quick, quick off-course excursion about Martha Rydell. Mar uh, some, some reason, I got into AP English in my senior year. I don't know how that happened. And she took me aside after about six weeks, and she said, I've got your number. She said, you've been sloughing off all through high school. I'm not going to grade you on what you do. She said, I'm going to grade you on what I know you're capable of doing. Oh my goodness! I get I get these papers back, and it looked like somebody'd been shot. I mean, it's just blood. <laughs> but but she she made me write. She made me learn to write. And um, every time I see her, I hug her neck. 
because she, she, she really made me step up. So um, I go to college at Lipscomb, mainly because of the discount. I really didn't have another choice, uh, which was fine. I majored in accounting because what I didn't say, during, during junior high, before I started throwing papers, I would go over to the business department, hang out at this table outside the offices, and I got to know all the business faculty. And so uh, she was the department secretary, and they were, I mean, I knew them as, you know, role models long before I was college bound, right? And um, so I, I majored in accounting, and she used to actually grade some of my tests, and so she would know what I had made before I did. <laughs> but Charles Frazier was a great influence on me, along with several others. And I will say in retrospect, when I look back, the Christian influences that I had at Lipscomb and later with Christian mentors like, where's Nan, like Doug and like Mr. Duncan back there were just great for me. And, um, and I would say, <laughs> yeah, secrets out. Uh, but um, I would say that their influence and then the influence of people like Doug and Mike as, as I got deeper into my career had a lot more to do with my modest success than my years at Vanderbilt, my business degree from Vanderbilt. And so most importantly at Lipscomb, I met Barry. She was a, uh, she was a freshman when I was a senior. And so that's another topic that she can tell her. <laughs> um, but and made lifelong, lifelong friendships. So... I did the route that a lot of people do right out of accounting, undergraduate, is I went into public accounting, and I absolutely hated it. There was not a day that I enjoyed going to work. Um, and I, I, didn't, I didn't like the environment. It was a workaholic culture, um, and I just did not like the work. And frankly, on a personal level, no one <laughs> likes to see the auditors coming. I mean, it's like you're, you're, you're like, you know, a temporary flu bug or something, you know. <laughs> um, I, I will say there was one really bright spot, and that was Bob Brannon. Bob was a partner at the firm that I went to work for, and it was obvious um, that he was different. He, he did care about you having some, you know, life away from work. And so, um, anyway, 1983, I got my CPA certificate and headed back to graduate school, and that was a at the time, it was a risky decision, especially for me. Um, I had no obligations. I had no romantic prospects. Uh, so, and I moved back with my mom and dad to save money because I was literally, you know, I didn't really have a lot to fall back on. <laughs> I will say this. The move home was great for my relationship with my father. Um, we got to know one another as adults. He felt good. He was free of the arthritis. And we enjoyed our time together, and uh, it, it turned out he passed away from a brain tumor about two years after I graduated. And uh, so those, those were special times. And um, so but back to coming out of, out of Pete Marwick, uh, the economy was really soft at 1983, and there was not a lot of jobs to jump out of accounting to go into industry. Nobody was leaving, kind of like now with houses. You know, interest rates have gotten back up. Nobody's moving. Um, so I, I really, I just bet that the economy would be better when I got out of school and that I would have more options than I had in 1983 when I decided to go back. Um, and the bet on having options paid off. Um, 
I had several attractive options to consider when I finished, and probably too many because it really took me, frankly, the rest of my 20s to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. And I haven't heard, and I now know that male, I, that what's the, the frontal lobe of the male brain isn't developed, that the frontal lobe, does that sound right, till you're 25? I think I'm a late bloomer in everything I've ever done, so it's probably more like 35 for me. But... Um, I changed jobs a lot the rest of my 20s. Um, so here's some lasting impacts, again, from the move. And um, I was very ambitious and very impatient. And so what that meant was I was, and I made several career decisions that were not good decisions, that ended badly. Um, and in my 20s, I had a series of one- and two-year stints. And uh, I was constantly looking for a better job, constantly. Um, and my, the pattern began to concern Barry and it concerned me. And we, I, I realized I really needed to settle down and stay somewhere for a while, five years or so, just to prove that I was going to plug in and, and engage. And, um, but my impatience really worked against me. Um, the grass was always greener. And ultimately, I think in the back of my mind was I did not want to get trapped in a dead-end job like I perceived my dad had been in. Um, and you know, it, I just didn't. And I, I, I had kind of pieced together the fact that that move was, had so many uh, dominoes that fell from that move that, that impacted everybody. So as I mentioned, he passed away in 1987. He was 64, and uh, I was 28. Uh, I'll confess for both of us that we really have never gone to our parents for advice or for counsel. <coughs> and... Um, a lot of that is my own ego and arrogance because I knew I was smarter than they are or were. Uh, I didn't, I, I, yeah, I was sure. I didn't, I, I mean, now I know that they were a lot more wise and experienced than we were. And, you know, um, but my dad's passing left a big hole in our family. Um, he was not, those of y'all that knew him, probably, I don't know if anybody in here knew him, but he was quiet. Um, and always in the background at family gatherings. But he was a really good man who led by example and put everybody in the family ahead of himself. And that was kind of my role model. After he passed, Barry's dad, Richard Craig, who many of you probably do know, did know, uh, he really stepped into the breach for me and became a trusted male role model for me. Uh, he passed away two years ago last month. And like my dad's passing, it left a big hole in our family. Um, so fast forward, 1989 is really much when my finance career really began, where I plugged into some meaningful roles and stayed uh, long enough to, you know, put pictures on the wall and uh, organize my office. Um, so the, the first job that I took was uh, I was with a, an international aluminum company called Naranda Aluminum. Um, I, I had a really, really, the most, the most interesting job I've ever had, quite frankly. I was a director of several joint ventures, including an alumina refinery in West Africa. Uh, I worked on a multi-billion dollar development project in southern Chile, which was fascinating. Um, I loved going down there. It was owned by a private equity firm, uh, and I was not directly involved with the investors, but a lot of the financial management skills that I learned were unique to working in a company owned by a private equity firm that came to help me out a lot later. 
The downside was, and it wasn't bad at first, but um, the downside was I traveled a lot, domestically and internationally. Um, and so Meredith and Craig were born in 1991, and the travel quickly went from being interesting and fun to um, a burden. And um, I will say this, Barry got to tag along with me several times. Like I had a trip to France that she was with me, but we had a great time. And then um, Canada, where else do we go? I, anyway, <laughs> several, several trips where she was just able to stay in the room and I would work part of the time, but usually have a weekend of dead time or whatever. But so the kids were born and it became a burden pretty quickly. And I had one trip that was really the straw that pretty much broke the camel's back as far as being a dad. Um, I started out here, I went to California, then I went to Miami, then I went to Southern Chile, and then I went to Brussels, Belgium, and then I went to Western Africa, and then back to Paris, and then home. I was gone for three weeks. And when I got home, Meredith would not have anything to do with me for at least a week. And so... I went and met with my boss, who's a very evangelical Christian named Ron Rowe, and kind of told him the scenario, told him I was going to have to find something that did not involve so much travel. And he said, sit tight, because I think something will, something will open up here in the fairly near future. And he goes, in the meantime, I'll take half your travel. And so um, he did, and that was a godsend. It really was. And a, a year later, a, another job opened up. It involved travel, but it was... The, the job itself was based in Brentwood, and the travel was to less glamorous places like Scottsboro, Alabama, or Huntington, Tennessee, or Barry's mom's birthplace, Newport, Arkansas. So, um, how am I doing on time? I'm... So, okay, I better shift into a higher gear then. So I'm gonna. I, I did have a lot of details of kind of what got me to where I am now, but um, let me. Okay, so. I left Miranda for a company called Manchester Tank and Equipment. It was a good move for professional reasons. I got, at 38 years old, I was, um, I was the CFO of an independent company. Um, and it just, I had topped out at Naranda because the CFO at Naranda was always going to be a Canadian. They would always bring a Canadian down here to be the CFO. So uh, I went to Manchester Tank and... Uh, my career flourished there, and then the company was bought about three years after I got there by a big family-owned conglomerate from Birmingham, and um, they, it was just not a good match. They did not value people. They really, they, 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 they fixed things that weren't broken, and, um, and then the business got, went really south because of several things that happened out of the company's control. And I spent two years closing five plants and putting about 700 people out of work. The COO and I worked that together. And they were just all over the world. I mean, we had a plant in Australia that we closed. We had one in Canada and then several in the U.S. And so that was, that was exhausting and just really hard because I knew a lot of these people pretty well. So in 2004, my job was eliminated. And I, was, I did not see that coming. In fact, the Christmas party before in 2003, the CEO, who the conglomerate people had brought, they brought in their person around the company. He, um, he had said in front of the whole corporate staff that I was his heir apparent and was the future of the company. And then eight months later, my job's eliminated. So that was kind of 
that was kind of hard to deal with. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I had some. I, I, I went to another company from that uh, that I wound up shutting it down and liquidating, and then uh, I went to the YMCA. Jamin Martin was kidding me when I joined the Y because, well, I guess the Y is going to go out of business. <laughs> and, uh, uh, which COVID did a number on the Y. Um, so, um, you really think I should go straight to the ears? Okay, all right. Um, so, I spent eight years at the Y, and it was the first five were good. The last three with COVID were really hard, really, really hard, because people just quit going to the Y, and we had to make decisions about programs and employees and whatnot. So, um, and then... The board made a really bad CEO hire after the guy that hired me retired. I mean, it was awful. And they, frankly, they fixed it within a year pretty quickly for a board to recognize the mistake. But in the meantime, at 63, I was approached by um, the Ayers family. Some of you all may know of Jim and Janet Ayers. Um, J Janet's very involved at Lipscomb, and Jim owned First Bank outright for a long time. Well, one of my friends was retiring as CFO. And he asked me if I'd be interested. And I, I'd, frankly, I'd lost confidence with the YMCA's board. And they, they, they were getting rid of, they got rid of the guy that they hired. But they kind of went the same playbook. Second time around, I was like, it's kind of the definition of insanity, right? But um, so I, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. Because David, my friend, had been there a long time. And uh, we had several concerns that we prayed. Really, I feel like we put the fleece out in front of the tent every night for three months and all our friends and and, and our yeah life our life group Kent was a big part of those discussions just allowing I, the way I process stuff as a side note is I don't talk a whole lot but I and I've done this with Mike and with Doug too it's like I remember asking your advice about something and you said what do you think you should do and I've talked for 15 minutes and he goes well that's what I would do <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> I don't even remember the issue, but, but it helps me to talk through things with people whose judgment I trust. And um, So anyway, I took the job, and it looked like the dream job. Uh, but And the, the family, the, all those issues, those three or four major issues, were addressed down the, by the numbers. And then I get there. And the job is nothing like I thought it was going to be. And we, they had not asked me the right questions in the interview, and I had not asked them the right questions about the nature of the job. And the job, from a, you'll appreciate this, Tom, is heavy accounting, heavy tax, and heavy real estate. And I'm none of those three things. I'm not at all. And so I really was miserable and got really depressed and uh, I mean depressed. I'd been anxious before, but I mean I was this classic. I'm having trouble getting out of bed and going to work and whatnot. Lost. Lost. Yeah, I, I told you I lost a lot of weight pretty quick. And I told Barry one time. I think I said this to David too. I'd rather be fat and happy than skinny and depressed. <laughs> 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 um, and I really thought about retiring. And so and I and I then. Fast forward, I, uh, the, there was a group purchasing organization called the YMCA Purchasing Group that I helped start when I was at the Y. And it's a, a group purchasing organization purchases equipment and supplies on behalf of other companies and gets a better deal and then shares the savings with the other companies. 
And I had helped start it. I'd been on the board for eight years, and the, my friend that runs it, we were talking. He, he just checked in on me. He said, well, how do you like your new job? And I said, I hate it. I'm thinking about retiring. And he goes, I will hire you tomorrow. And I was like, Terry, don't, don't kid around. He goes, no, I'm serious. And so he was. And um, so we spent about a month getting ready, to, I mean, kind of fleshing the job out and whatnot. And um, I left the heirs organization on very good terms and joined Y Purchasing about three months ago. And it's the happiest I've been in a long, long time. Um, I've got a lot of flexibility. Um, and, and this may be a little oversharing, but I, I did question God because, I, I mean, I, I was planning on finishing my career at the Y. Um, it got tougher, and uh, I thought the move to the heirs organization was, I mean, I was in the fast lane on the interstate for the last three years, right? And then I thought the move to the heirs organization, because Jim's 80 years old, but he's every bit as active as he ever was and engaged and demanding. He's a good man, but he is demanding. I thought I was moving over on the, to a couple of lanes to the right on the interstate. It turns out I was passing people on the shoulder on the left. It was, it was intense. And so I thought, man, why? Okay, why did I have to go through that six months of unmitigated, you know what, to get to this job? And I finally, I was up in Louisville where our headquarters is, talking to the CEO, and I, and I asked Terry that. And he said, Joey, he said, if I had known you were interested in leaving the Y, I would have talked to you, but I can't go hiring people directly out of YMCA's because they're my customers and our members. He said, you were fair game once you left the Y. And he goes, and if you'd retired, I would have come after you. But so I'm coming to grips with that. And, you know, usually I, I haven't, just to be candid, I have not gotten to the point where I can look back on the beach and see whose footprints those were. Were they God's or were they mine or were they both, you know? But um, it, it what? Oh, oh, well, I, I went when I, my job from Manchester Tank at Manchester Tank was eliminated. I went through outplacement counseling, and I was helped an incredible amount by people that I didn't. It just surprised me. I mean, Mike Rancy and I became very close friends because I was on his. I was in his office weekly. Uh, Tony Ross and I became very good friends. I was in his office pretty often. But the outplacement made me realize that there's a process to how you look for a job, and I realized that in my most of my career, when somebody called me about a job, if I didn't have any openings in my company, I was just sorry we don't have anything. And that's not what the job search is about at all. And I'll give you one example of somebody that it shouldn't have surprised me now that I know him well, but Dick Howard. I mean, I, you know, Dick, you, you pull any Rolodex out of people that you want to talk to when you're looking for a job, Dick's somebody you want to get in touch with, right? And I got a meeting with him, and I was like, man, and quick. I mean, like, I, I emailed him. His secretary emailed me back, like, two days later. and said, hey, how about Friday at 2? So I go downtown Friday at 2, and I'm thinking 30 minutes. And at 4.30, I'm still sitting in his office, and he's given me 8 or 10 names. He's called people on my behalf. He sent emails. And, I'm, and at the time, those of y'all that don't know who Dick Coward is, he is the national lawyer in charge of Baker Donaldson's national health care practice. So even, even in 2004, he's probably billing $1,000 an hour. So there's $2,500 of time that Dick spent with me, and it was I'll never forget it. And uh, so what I realized when I landed on my feet was 
this is a big deal for a lot of men to go through this, and it's become my ministry. I wrote, it's war and peace now when I look back on it, and it's badly outdated, but I wrote a piece about the job search process, and it's part testimonial, and it's part how-to. Uh, it's how to do things that financial people are not good at, like networking. You know, I mean, our job is in front of a computer, right? We really don't know how to interact with people well. I mean, um, but anyway, I'm 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 landing I'm landing okay. the plane. <laughs> um, Your ministry. Oh, and yeah, it's become a it's become a ministry, and so, um, you know, if y'all know anybody that's in transition, you know, send them my way. And, and what I found is the softer part of it, it's not so much the how to. It's just having a safe place like Mike, I had with Mike and Doug, when you're in a dark place to be able, I mean, because I said some things, my, my, what I learned in outplacing is both members of a married couple need a safe person to talk to. And my safe person was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and hers was one of her close friends. And there are things that I could say to him that I could say to her now, but I couldn't say to her when I was 45 and we had two fifth graders, you know. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of become my ministry. And, and again, the, the part of it I think that's more helpful than anything is being that safe person to talk to and, and, um, and just letting people kind of let their guard down and be real and authentic about how vulnerable they feel. And it's a big part of, of my identity. It's too much a part of my identity. Uh, I've, I've come to terms, when I, when I went through that first episode, I finally came to terms with the fact that I am God's child no matter who I'm working for. And so uh, a lot changed in my perspective. I used to be, uh, I don't know how to say this, but I, I'm a lot more in the moment than I used to be. Um, so here's the takeaways of 64 years and change. God has always taken care of us and of me. I've had an extremely blessed life. I have a great family, great friends. This is a great church community. And I've had an interesting and rewarding career, and I'm blessed with good health. Uh, so nothing is certain. So I've, I've embraced the moment and tried to, you know, like we went, we went to Europe with Don and Barbara in 2019 and traipsed all around France and Belgium and, you know, de- retracing the steps of the deed. And when I first started thinking about doing that, I thought, there's no way I can get away for three weeks. And I just did it. And I don't realize, I don't remember what I didn't do while I was not working during those three weeks, you know? Um, so, did, okay, I lighten up a little bit. If you always expect the worst, you will almost always be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> this, these, that, these next two are my dad, and I think he saw some tendencies in me and my work ethic early on that he did, he did not have and he didn't want me to have. He said, trust me, no one on their deathbed wishes they had spent more time in the office. And the other one he said was, there aren't any U-Hauls in funeral processions. So. No Corvettes. Huh? What? There's no Corvettes. There's no Corvette in the funeral. Well, I've got, I've got a grandson that's going to learn to drive a manual. Um, I wish I could say don't sweat the little stuff. And it's all little stuff, but I'm not there yet. I'm better, but I'm not there yet. So uh, thank you all so much for your attention today. Barry Scott's going to close us out with a couple of scriptures that have been really, really, really um, important to both of us. Um, 
Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And then, this is the New Living Version. I was like, wow, this is perfect for this morning. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Joey, thank you so much.